Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. Writing a memoir isn't just about writing about what you know. You can write what you know, but it likely will be a bore if you don't pay attention to your structure, the scenes you create, and also the dialogue. Your memoir must read like a great piece of fiction and must be about something larger than you. Unless you're a celebrity or writing a family legacy book, nobody really cares about you, but they care about your ideas. Here with us today is Kristen Iris, a ghostwriter and editor who uses the fundamentals of screenwriting when structuring memoirs. The strategies she provides in this interview will help you write a memoir that is well-crafted and therefore worth reading from beginning to end. Welcome, Kristen, to our podcast. We're so excited to have you here today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I love to talk shop. We do too. So you are in the right place. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. I know that you're a ghostwriter. So can you tell people what a ghostwriter is and how you got into that and also what else you do in addition to ghostwriting? So I've been full-time in the publishing industry as a freelance ghostwriter developmental editor for went on eight years now, I think, and mm-hmm. really just started out wanting to be a writer, professional writer, and make a living as a writer and realize that, oh, that's a lot harder than <laughs> you don't just hang up your shingle and, you know, slip into a, an income. So I started with looking at a friend of mine's book. He, he had a second book coming out and I said, oh, sure, I'll, you know, I'll be a beta reader. And I just fell in love with the developmental editing, giving feedback like that. And then I, I just, it just kind of went from there. I've, I've worked with some publishers and done some talent scouting for publishers and different things. But, but the main thing that I do, my, my true love is developmental editing and, and helping authors from the very beginning structure their books and make choices about writing that really, really bridge the gap between their vision, what they want to say and what they want to do in the world and what the reader wants and needs, because those two things have to line up. And sometimes we we get one way or the other. We're too much in our heads thinking, I just want to say this no matter what, and then, or doing everything for the reader. And then it becomes the fun of it, the craft of it, that creative part gets taken from us. So I really, I really just like, especially the developmental editing and the ghostwriting really evolved from that because then I had clients who I would give developmental feedback and they would say, oh my gosh, this is great. Thank you so much. I don't think I can do this. (laughs) So then I would fill in the gaps for them. I rewrote a book and then then it's just a matter of degrees. You know, suddenly you realize like, oh, wait a second. I just ghost wrote a book and 
I didn't realize it. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me where people break down in that moment where they say, I can't do this myself. What, what, What moment is that typically? Or is there not a typical moment when that happens? I think it's after they get developmental feedback from a position of they want to write a book that's commercially viable. And then when they get that professional feedback and they realize how much is involved with the craft of writing, that's when they're like, oh gosh, I don't have the skill set necessary to do this. And it's also with, with aspiring writers who maybe are just, especially memoirists who have one book in them, like they want to write this book and then be done. So that's a different mindset than somebody who is an aspiring, what I call writer. They have this writer mentality and they have this deep love of the craft. Those people are going to take that, those recommendations and go, oh, wow, this is harder than I thought. Okay, great. And they're going to, they're going to test it out and try it out. Right. So yeah, I think the breakdown really comes with those one and done type writers. And I don't say that with any criticism that that's a fine place to be. But, but that, I think, is the breakdown. That's so interesting. We've worked with both types of writers, and that's really helpful. Like, if you just want to write your family memoir because you want it for the next generation, right? And you're not, and you, you never had as aspirations as a child of writing a book or even later aspirations as an adult to write a book. You just want it to be done. <laughs> that makes total sense to me. So when you talk to people who are wanting to write a memoir, I think that we read that you say that most people get the advice of just write what you know, but that's often dangerous advice. So what what is the danger in just writing what you know? And what advice would you give to people in lieu of that? I think it kind of starts with deciding why you want to write the book, who your audience is, what you want to do, because I like to distinguish memoir. Like there's two categories for me. One is what I would call legacy memoir, and the other is commercial memoir. So Legacy memoir is really what people write who say, you know what, I want to write this for my children, for my grandchildren to kind of just know their family heritage, or this is something I've learned in life and I want to pass this down to the generations. And in that case, it's like, yeah, just write what you know. Don't worry about structure so much. I mean, obviously you want to get it to where people will finish it, but they're going to read it and care about it because they love you and care about what you have to say, right? And your your audience is very small and very forgiving. So so that's one thing. But if you desire for other people to read the book and for it to have what I'm calling a commercial memoir to where people will pay money for it, read it from start to finish and hopefully give you good reviews and tell other people that it's worth reading, then... You have to take, write what you know as one aspect and figure out what is it about what you know that people are interested in hearing about. And that's where you, you cross those things over. So they, your audience needs to have what I would call a pre-existing condition or an interest, a pre-existing interest. So pre-existing condition being that whatever the topic, the theme of, of what you want to write about something that also affects them and they want to see how you've worked through this journey so that they can learn and grow from it or that they have an interest in the topic. I have a client who is, he's a 
international nightclub owner and owned clubs and operated clubs during the club kids days back then, right? So his memoir, people who are interested in that, they have an interest in the club scene and the, you know, that kind of scene from the 80s, 90s and early aughts. So that's an interest-based one. Other memoirists that I that I work with are have something like disability or survivor memoir, that kind of thing. So you have to really say, what is it about what I know that other people want to hear about and find a way to put those things together and leave out the other stuff. So take, for instance, the survivor memoir. There are a lot of people that want to talk about how they survived cancer or whatever. And that can become a very kind of generic memoir, like it's been written already. So how do you how do you make a memoir in that category interesting and readable and unique? It's tricky. And it's always hard when people come to me. There's there's two main ones that people come to me with. One is a cancer type of, of memoir, and the other is a divorce memoir. And it is tricky because those are two things that affect almost every single person in some way or another, right? So you really have to figure out what is what is the unique thing that only I can offer from this lived experience and focus that in the journey. So it really is very tricky. Now, I will say that there are some people who just are wonderful writers and wordsmiths. Well, first of all, they're also very deep thinkers, right? So they can take something that's very common and just the way that they use language, it's almost like, at least from my perspective, I almost don't care what they're writing about. They could be writing about walking and chewing gum at the same time, and I don't care. There's something very delicious about the way that they craft the wording, right? But if you're not one of those people, then I would say really just think really hard about what is it that that you hope to accomplish in this. And I think that that's where writing is wonderful and it can be very cathartic. But is this writing for your own catharsis? And is it really just journaling and getting it out so that you can process it? And there, that's a wonderful thing, but that's not something that is going to be commercially viable and maybe not something for public. Can you give an example of like the either the divorce scenario or the cancer scenario of how somebody took that and made it unique, how, like what, what spin they gave to it to make it unique. I think it'd be helpful to have an example. From the cancer perspective, Cheryl Strade's book, Wild, and this is sort of an old example, but I just think that that's one of the best memoirs out there. So her mother got cancer and died, but what she did, it was, it was, the story of her journey of processing that grief and coming out on the other side. But the author's life sort of unraveled after that. And she was in a bad place making bad choices in her life. And she realized like, oh, I got to figure myself out. And she took a radical step and decided to hike the Pacific Coast Trail. Okay, so that she, she used the setting, the trail, she used the journey of that trail is kind of a metaphor for her journey of, of recovering, right? And the way she she wove in the scenes of her actually progressing through the trail, along the trail, and then flashing back to her childhood and her mother 
and that kind of thing. That is a very unique thing. And it's, it really wasn't about cancer. It was about a woman processing grief and pulling her life together at a critical time. So, so that's one example there. And then the only divorce example I can think of is a client of mine who went through a divorce and her book is a crossover between a, like a, a business and a memoir. So she started a business after that divorce because of everything she went through. And she helps women who are going through divorce process through it, make good choices and come out on the other end. So what we did there was she had a system that she created for her coaching business, but we followed her journey, her divorce, and each of the chapters has a scene from her her divorce journey and then goes into more of a prescriptive type of a thing with exercises at the end of the chapter for the reader. So that is a crossover memoir. What I hear you saying is that there's an attention paid to structure that isn't necessarily paid if you're just going out to write your cancer story, which probably has like a beat, like it's probably much more chronological people who don't think of it strategically like you're talking about it. And the more interesting memoirs have this deep structure that's moving people. I love that those two examples, yeah. I think those are really, really helpful. So I'm assuming you do a lot of legacy memoirs, but you probably also have done some commercial memoirs. I like that distinction. How do you, as a ghostwriter, let's talk about the act of ghostwriting. So if I'm, a, I'm someone that has a memoir that I, I think, man, I can't write that. I need, to ha- I need to hire somebody to help me write that. So what are the expectations of someone who comes to you and how do you go about finding the voice of that writer? Okay, so first, I actually do much more commercial memoir than legacy memoir. So normally, if somebody's doing a legacy memoir, I just tell them about structure and all that, and then they go off and do it. Or I just refer them to somebody who really loves. That's a specific. You have to be much more gentle with, with legacy memoir writers because... My, my skill set is, is the craft and the, the commercial side. So I do more of that. Really, to get somebody's voice, you really have to do a lot of interviewing. So, so really ghostwriters, good ghostwriters are good journalists and good interviewers. You need to, first of all, recognize just from what the person is saying, like, is there a story? Is there a book here? Right. Sometimes there's not. The story just doesn't have enough of those plot points to make it a good book. Oh, one thing real quick, I want to go back and say that sometimes a memoir doesn't always have to be a book. There's personal narrative essays and essays are very powerful. So if you don't feel like your story is big enough for a book, that doesn't mean it's not important and it's not powerful. Put it into a different format, which can be an essay. The answer to every question is structure. So the first thing is really just, like I said, getting enough of their story to kind of figure out, is there a book here? And if there is, then figuring out, okay, what exactly is that story? Where does it start? Where does it end? And where is the arc? And then start asking questions about, well, tell me, tell me about things that jump out at you 
that you feel are important, even if you don't know why yet, just tell me whatever. And then they start talking about things from their childhood and things from this or that, right? I just start to kind of arrange it in my mind and start asking deeper and deeper questions. Oh, you said this. Why was that important to you? Because most of the time when we're asked a question, we answer superficially. And it's not until somebody asks us the follow-up questions that we really get down to the, oh, you know what? The reason that that was important was because X, Y, Z. So when you really understand why things are important to your client and to yourself, really, you know, if you're the one writing the memoir, you really need to dig down and ask yourself those follow-up questions. Why, 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 why? Then you're able through the hours and hours of transcripts, pages and pages of transcriptions that you're going through to be able to weed out the, oh, this was a superficial answer versus, ah, this is the core of what that person, who that person is and how they think. And once you get that, you can start to channel that person in your writing. And it comes out mostly when you're writing dialogue. Because dialogue is the one thing in a memoir that there's an understanding between the reader and the memoirist that, okay, this dialogue is an approximation of what happened, right? It's not verbatim. Occasionally, like there are some things that people say to us that stick in our minds and we do remember verbatim. But for the most part, we're just, we're creating a scene and replicating a moment, right? And you do need to have an understanding of all of the characters involved to replicate dialogue. I had another follow-up. What are the signals when you work with someone early on that they really don't have a memoir? They don't have enough for a memoir. What are the signals like this? You see this, this, you go, you know, you know, an essay is probably something you might want to do or, but what are the signals? When, when I'm structuring a memoir, what I like to do is choose about seven to 10 big moments that I can create a connect the dots thing over the course of that full book. And then you see, see the arc. And then it's a matter of filling in the blanks from there. So if the person is only giving me two or three big moments that I can fit into the arc that's supposed to be there, and I'm asking questions and I can't they're just not coming up with other big moments, then it's going to be very hard for me to, it's going to be impossible for me to, to craft a good book that's going to keep readers engaged. The other thing that I, that I found is that, you know, when you write a memoir, it really is like walking naked through a cactus field, right? And, and, or maybe more, more is walking naked slowly across a football field with a full stadium, you have to be willing to be really vulnerable and to be absolutely honest about your own thoughts and feelings and other people. And often first-time memoirists, what they really want to do is rant and get something out of their system and make somebody else the bad guy and them the hero of the story in a very binary way, rather than to allow the reader to see the actual struggle and the ugliness of what's going on. So if I'm interviewing somebody, 
or looking at a manuscript. And it's like, where's the vulnerability? If there's no vulnerability there, unless it's a celebrity memoir or something like that, that's very, you know, salacious or something like that. There's just, there's just really not enough to, to craft a full, the arc of a story. I have a follow-up question. When you're ghostwriting for somebody, but it's critical to get key acquaintances or members of the family or friends or colleagues in the story because you want to create that dialogue or get their perspective. How do you do that when you weren't present for those conversations? Do you and you have interviews with these other people? How do you how do you bring that into the story? How do you bring their perspective into the story? So that also has to do with budget. When somebody is hiring a ghostwriter, it takes a lot of time to craft a book and, and there's expenses involved with professional transcription and all of those kinds of things. The price point, really, unless you're able to spend over 50000 and and more than 100000 really, the ghostwriter is probably not going to have the opportunity to interview all of those different people. And I certainly have not. And, and a lot of clients don't want you to. They just tell your perspective. So the thing that I do is just asking those follow-up questions from my clients. And if I feel like they're starting to rant or they're trying to paint somebody as the absolute villain in a story, I just kind of back them up and try to remind them that like, there are some terrible people in the world that are just, there are narcissists and all that kind of stuff. That's also a word that I think it's used way overused. So it's really just like, well, what do you think they were going through in that moment? Why do you think they might have reacted that way? Where was the real source of the conflict? Sometimes you can get in, get into that. I don't think that the ghostwriter needs to really understand or be able to get into the head of the other people in the story, like a novelist or someone else should do. But what they do need to be able to do is have empathy and look at that person and really consider what that person might have been going through based on what they know. And based on that, they're going to be able to write a much more nuanced scene and conversation. And they're going to think more deeply about what was happening in that moment. And that's actually going to really make the story richer because then on the other end of it, and actually, this is the wonderful thing about memoir. Often, the client comes to me thinking that this is the story and that their healing and the resolution happened like asked. But then through this process, they actually, things really click in. And so the ending of the book is, is richer and deeper than it was before. You keep on coming back to structure. And, and I love that because too many people do not think about structure with memoirs, or they think chronologically, but can you help our listeners understand the different types of structures for memoirs and how you begin to figure out what the structure might be or ought to be for your own memoir? So when it comes to memoir, it's, well, any story, I think it's kind of a, it's about what works. And that's not a great answer because that's very subjective and hard Mm -hmm. to pin down. So what I start everybody out with is saying, all right, let's define the scope of the book. First and foremost, what's the scope of the book? What is 
the theme of the book, what's what's the story arc? And that allows you to say, okay, anything that comes to mind as far as what I might want to put in the book, I'm going to compare it against this. And if it doesn't fit into this, it's out. If it does, it's up for consideration. And then I am a visual person and a very tactile, kinetic person. So what I recommend people do, well, let me go back to, to defining the scope. Then I also say, all right, most commercial memoirs are between 60 and 80,000 words. So pick something within that. I think shorter is better. So normally I tell people, let's aim for 60,000 words and we're going to think in scenes. So within that 60,000 words, let's just say we're going to have 30 scenes. And then when you start talking about scenes, it's much easier for people to understand how to move move a story forward. And it also begins to be much more, it breaks down writer's block because now they know, oh, it's just, we're just going to tell little stories one on top of another. So then I say, this is my ghostwriting process too. So I tell people like, be your own ghostwriter. I get sticky notes and I use different colored sticky notes because often a memoir is going to have some combination of, you know, maybe your work life and your personal life. It's going to have some different categories of information that all line up as things move forward. So I say, just assign a color to the sticky note for each line storyline. Then jot down memories or ideas for, oh yeah, this was a pivotal moment in my life. That that needs to be in there because if they don't know about this, they're not going to understand why I did this later, right? So you just start to brainstorm and just do a data dump on paper. Then take all your sticky notes or however, whatever tool you use. And then I do recommend that they line all that stuff up in chronological order. So you can use a mirror board. I use the windows of my house. <laughs> I just start sticky noting them. A whiteboard. The beauty of that is then you can step back. You can look at all of it. And then you can go, okay, well, I want to tell this story strictly in chronological order. Or do I want to move scenes around? So this is where it's kind of helpful to know the difference between autobiography and memoir. Also, autobiography is typically written chronologically and it kind of starts at birth and comes up to the present day. I think that unless you're doing like legacy memoir or if it's celebrity memoir, don't write an autobiography. Nobody cares where you were born, what your grandparents' names are. Nobody cares. Trust me. So you have to de decide with the memoir where are you going to start the story. And where does it end? A memoir is usually covers a either a well-defined time in a person's life, or it is covering the theme of something, a narrative arc, right? So then you have all of those potential scenes lined up in chronological order. Then you can decide, okay, I want this memoir to start with whatever. You decide you want it to start in a certain place. Then you can look back chronologically and go, okay, everything that happened before that, 
what needs to go? What can I just eliminate? And what needs to stay? Then you can decide, oh, okay, you know what? This scene that happened here that I'm going to write, the reason that that happened was because of something that happened in childhood. Okay, so then you you can pull those scenes from the past up in the manuscript, and that's where you can then decide where those flashback scenes are going to happen. And you just start just start experimenting, and that's the fun part of it. Is don't lock your in by sitting in front of a computer at a blank white page trying to figure out what the heck you're doing. Experiment with it. See how it looks visually. You're going to see the arc of the story. You're going to see the moments where you look and go, oh, wait, I have like 10 scenes here. But actually, I need to write something between these two scenes because there's this jump that readers aren't going to understand the connections. Or you're going to see where big moment happens. And then you have 20 scenes before another important thing happens. And then you can start to see your pacing. And this is really where the structure is of going, oh, wait a second. I've got to really look at this because that's too long to try to drag the reader along between important moments of my life. And then you just start making very strategic choices. And, and then I say, even though you've thought that, okay, we're going to go for 30 scenes, you might realize, oh, this is a 24-scene book. Okay, fine. Or, oh, you know what? Actually, this is a 41-scene book. Okay, fine. Then you're looking at your word count to say, okay, but I don't want to write it any more than 60 or 70,000 words. Now I'm going to do the math. I'm going to split the word count goal between the number of scenes. And now I know that each scene is going to be approximately this many words. Again, that helps with writer's block, keeps you focused. Okay, that's what I need to do. Some scenes are going to be shorter. Some scenes are going to be longer. But you're not going to just start writing into the weeds because you have that, you have those defined points. How often do you start writing before you have the whole thing mapped out? So there is a sense in which you are also, you know, you're mapping it out in terms of scenes, but you got to create tension. Just because you have scenes doesn't mean it actually hooks the reader, right? So one thing has to, there has to be some cliffhangers. There has to be, you know, whatever it is that makes the reader want to continue. So as you're thinking about a project, and I ask a question, because I think somebody who listens to this, which someone who's trying to write a memoir might say, do I need to wait to have everything mapped out before I start writing? What's your approach? Do you, I, I map generally the whole thing, but then I might start working on a section because that helps me think about, oh yeah, no, I really need three more scenes in this. How do you think about that? That's what I do too. I say, okay, start out thinking of, of these things, but there are two types of writers also. And I don't think there's any better way to write. So you've got the pastors and the plotters that we talk about. Some people, when I start talking about this type of plotting thing and structuring it out, they just, to them, it sounds too formulaic and too structured for their way they like to do things. And in that case, I say, great, go and actually just do it however you want. But at the end of the day, it's still all about structure. You're going to have to structure either on the front end or the back end and there's always structuring, restructuring that happens in the middle. So 
be aware of this structure. And then if you're a, if you're a panster, follow your bliss, man, do what you want and just ram out the whole thing. However, whatever makes you happy and then go back from a reader's perspective and go, okay, let's see, let's identify. Does this start in the right place? Does it end in the right place? Do I hit all these things? How much of a gap is there between these important points? How's my pacing? When I'm ghostwriting, I always need to see the structure. This is the way Kristen's brain works. I am paralyzed if I don't see the, the general arc. However, I always tell my clients, just because this is how I'm saying it's going to look now, it's absolutely not going to look exactly like this. You always get in and start writing something and realize, oh, actually, I don't need this. Oh, you know what? How did I miss this gaping hole in the story? Or as you do follow-up interviews, you realize, oh, there's a better story there. So that's where the fun of it is and the frustration is that it really is a craft and you need to be able to be a logical thinker and a, a structured thinker. But the creativity is there and you can't, you can't not be creative and, and restructure along the way. So there's no one right answer, I guess. Can we go back to what Dave was saying about tension? When, when you're writing or when you're helping other people write, how, how do you create that tension within chapters and even at the end of chapters so that they want to keep reading? What are, what are some strategies that you can provide? The first one really is that if you have your scenes ordered correctly and you are making sure that you don't have boring scene after boring scene and then something, you know, interesting or dramatic happening. So the reader starts to check out. You're structuring it to where you've got these nice, maybe what might be considered tent poles or more interesting scenes closer together. You're going to keep the reader's interest, right? The other thing you can, you can do, and this is where the craft of writing comes in. Answer is always, it depends, right? So I have on occasion, taken a scene and actually split the scene to where write half the scene and then cut it off like that cliffhanger, do something else, perhaps a flashback, something else that's important, then pick that scene up later. I think, though, that for first-time memoirists, that is a next-level writing skill. So, If you are structuring your book according to scenes, if you understand what a scene is and you're writing scenes, and if you've structured the book properly, there should be a level of interest that your reader has already baked into it. So I think focus on those fundamentals before you start trying to add these these different layers. And remember that, you know, writing is rewriting. So your first draft, is a draft. You're going to go back and to build in segues and figure out a better way to say this or tighten up this scene. And that again is going to increase the pacing. I think also that sometimes we think about there's suspense and then there's pacing. They certainly cross over, but I don't necessarily think that you need to have suspense like we think about it in a psychological thriller or mystery type 
murder mystery type of a genre book, I don't think you necessarily have to have suspense in memoir. What you need is tension. By tension, it's making sure that you have the rising stakes, that you're ramping up, not so much the action, but that the stakes, what's at stake is understood and why it's important. And then writing just to keep the reader engaged with you as the protagonist, because you as the protagonist are really the reader avatar. They're, they're living out a life and learning. You're really in the mentor role. If they can see themselves in your shoes, they're going to be engaged. So think more about pacing and, and that, that tension rather than the classic definition that we might think of from fiction or suspense. Maybe that's splitting hairs a little bit. I love that idea of an, an avatar. I think that's so fresh. But our writers often struggle with in memoirs is that they don't know how to create a scene. They don't see themselves employing the strategies of fiction writing or screenwriting, as I was talking about with you earlier. And so it just becomes them all in their head, kind of pontificating, and it, it just is really boring. So can you give just a real clear definition of what a scene is, what it includes, and why they're so important to the reader? So a scene is a mini story. It needs to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, just like a book. So somebody is just in their normal state doing something. Something happens. There's some inciting incident. You know, someone interrupts them or whatever can can be lots of different things. An opportunity arises or a problem arises. Then they have to shift their thinking from whatever they were doing. And they shift and they engage with that. They move forward and then something changes at the end. So wherever they started at the beginning of that scene is not going to be the same place that they end up there mentally or physically. The other thing is that a scene involves almost always other characters. So there's interaction with other people or with the environment in some way. But again, there has to be that interruption from whatever that, I'll say character, you know, the protagonist, whatever the, the author in this case, the memoirist, was doing that changes them and causes them to go do something else. A lot of memoirists are just kind of writing their thinking and feeling. And that's why memoir has that, has a bad rap and is often considered navel gazing. And that is super boring for a reader. Even if you're thinking deep thoughts and dropping knowledge for the reader, after a while, it doesn't create an immersive experience. So it's not visual. So if a scene happens in a setting also. So writers who can describe the setting and showing interactions with other people, the dialogue, all of those things, it really creates that immersive experience for the reader. And it also helps the, if you understand what a scene is, that beginning, middle, and end, then you know where to stop and where to start the next thing. So I always tell people, think like a filmmaker. Imagine what, how this plays out, you know, in real life and write, write in the action, write in the setting. The other thing is that you can create mood that way. If you think about when you're really happy or when you're angry or 
sad or something like that. You pay attention to different things in your environment. For me, I'm very sensitive to noise and flashing lights and things like that. When I'm in a really good mood and very relaxed, my threshold, my tolerance for those kinds of things is much higher. But when I'm stressed out or whatever, my threshold is lower. So you can write the scene in a way, get inside whatever your energy was at that time and your emotions and write about the scene from that perspective. Does that make sense? And that that conveys mood and in a way that shows a lot of stuff without having to just write it out telling, you know, writing it out very bluntly. I was sad. I was mad. This was annoying me. <laughs> Those kinds of boring things. Yeah, you're talking about the craft of writing there. And so many people enter into the memoir writing process, not thinking about craft. So I love that you're focusing on that because that will make a much richer experience for the for the reader. One final question on that with dialogue. So many people and the people we work with on fiction also, they use dialogue to, t- to tell backstory, but it's really dangerous because they end up including information just for the reader's sake, but it at, at, actually isn't something that the two people would actually be talking about because they have a history together. Do you have any other tips for like writing dialogue? I think there's two things real quick. There's a distinction between backstory and exposition. Backstory is something that happened in somebody's past that influences them. Reader doesn't need to know about. So like in this conversation, I've had 50 years worth of experience and all of that kind of stuff, right? Almost none of it applies to this. All of that is backstory. Led me to this place and each of you to this conversation, right? But it's backstory. Exposition is information that the reader absolutely needs to know in order to understand the story. So you have to find some way of giving that to the reader, whether it's just outright putting it in a sentence you know, these two people met in college in 1984, Syracuse, New York, or whatever. Or you can use dialogue to communicate that exposition. But you're absolutely right. Too many people use dialogue as a way to talk to the reader. It is the author talking to the reader, not two characters talking to each other. And I think that's the way for, for especially new writers to be able to step out of their own story and evaluate their own dialogue is to go, and just what you said, Melissa, would two people who have known each other for a long time or who have this, whatever the relationship is, really talk to each other that way? If they wouldn't, take out that dialogue and figure out another way to, if the reader even needs that information, to give it to them and then just make it very natural. And the other thing is that dialogue is not chit-chat. So, hey, how's it going? How are the, you know, how are the kids? How's the dog? That's quote unquote natural dialogue, right? That's natural conversation. That's not what dialogue, that's not the function of dialogue in a story. The function of dialogue is to serve to either reveal something about character or to move the story forward. That's such a great thought. I love all that. I have, I think this is a final question. It has to do with helping an author really understand what their book is about. You talked about the why until you know the why it's hard to know kind of the destination of where the story is going. 
when you're at the front end of a project and you sense that the author isn't really clear on what the book is about, you know there's a there there, but you need to get more clarity on that. What kind of process do you use? The big question that I always ask them is, at the end of this book, what's the reader takeaway? What is it that you want the reader to take away? And if they can't answer that question, there's no there there. But that's what starts the conversation of, oh, well, I think it would be this. And then I can ask follow-up questions. Okay, well, why, 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 why? Until you get to the real thing. Because then often people will be like, oh, no, you know what? Actually, through all this, this is what I learned. And this is what I hope the reader takes away. Ah, okay. Now we can start choosing scenes that that get us to that that final place. Because I think authors especially memoirists, think that the book is about them. And it is, but it really isn't. Readers don't, unless you're a celebrity or, again, if you're writing a legacy memoir and your kids just love you and they, they want to read it, the book is really not about you. It's about the reader, what's in it for the reader. So you've got to be able to answer that question up front. And that's the distinction between, or another way of thinking about commercial versus legacy memoir. If there's nothing at the end of that, that's like the takeaway for the reader, that the reader closes the book and goes, wow, that was worth the six, eight, 10 hours that it took for me to do that. Then you've got to think harder before you start. What a fantastic interview this has been. Thank you so much, Kristen, for being with us. This is so rich and it's going to be so helpful for all those people out there who do want to write a memoir. That's a, that's a huge audience. So thank you so much. Well, thank you guys. Like I said, I love to talk shop and it's been a while since I've been able to do it. So thanks for the great questions and stuff. And I, I could talk forever. So I'm glad that <laughs> I'm glad that we got to do this. All right, Dave, we're ready to turn to our words of the episode. I will go first. And my word of the episode is jetsam, J-E-T-S-A-M. And it kind of is what it sounds like. So it's the part of a ship's equipment or cargo that is thrown overboard to lighten the load in a storm. So it's kind of related to the word jettison, right? Jetsam is the noun. It is not the verb jettison. And the secondary meaning is debris, remains, or materials that is left behind. So you could say like the jetsam from Lollapalooza was beer cans, taco cellophane, or whatever, taco show, whatever, that, that's jetsam. So here's one that was in the New York Times. This was a sentence, and I thought it was a good use of the word. Late last fall, there was an unusual site on a beach in southern England. A team of staff members from Glendenborn Festival Opera combing the shingle for flotsam and jetsam, then carting it off in wheelbarrows for use on stage. I love that. I think it's a fun word to say, jetsam. Okay, Dave, what is your word of the episode? So mine is pirogue, which means to like defer or to delay. It's really used in association with like Congress or a legislative body. So the House was all set to prorogue, basically to delay the session, not to, to end it and all go home, but to delay it or defer it. So it's, dis, it's discontinuing a meeting for a, a certain period of, of time. So prorogue, P-R-O-R-O-G-U-E, prorogue. 
So interesting because when you say it, it sounds like that R is almost silent, rogue, yeah, or it's very rogue. subtle. So I don't think yeah. I would have ever spelt that word correctly if I was asked to transcribe what you just said. Hopefully I said it correctly. Pirogue. It, it is pirogue. I mean, that's pirogue. the only way you can say it, but it does have that P-R-O at the beginning. So That's a great word. And I guess you could use it metaphorically also, though it's used mostly in the sense of an assembly. So great word. Well, I think that ends our episode. I loved everything that we learned today about memoir writing. I hope it's useful to every one of you who's listening. We look forward to having you back here in our next episode. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write.